Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash Internet for details. We were looking at the type of chances that Pookie was getting and thinking, we create a lot of them chances. So if he can make the same type of runs here and we can continue creating them chances, the stats are telling us it's going to work in simple terms. I saw something in the, the media, BBC Gossip column, which I'm sure you will look at first thing in the morning. It's the first thing you do. You don't say hello to the wife, you go, I don't know. Is that, is that right or what? I look sometimes, I look sometimes. Ruby found it on the agent, But no, on that, um, Jack Greenish was linked to my life for £75 million. Well, that's the benchmark. What's Todd done different to Jack Grealish? So that's the price. <laughs> say that again. Yeah, say that again. Jack Grealish is agent on here, is it? I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually done an independent test with our doctor, which has come back uh, negative. Wow. Um, wow which is confusing. Um, so now he's got to have a third test to see if that comes back negative. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to yet again another episode of the Beautiful Game podcast. As ever, I'm your host, Budge. Before I introduce my faithful co-conspirators, just a reminder that you can watch our content via our visual platform in YouTube, and you can listen to our content uh, via our audio uh, platform in Spotify. Now, of course, I'm joined by um, uh, Dot and Dej. Gents, how are we doing? Yo, Budge, I'm all right. How are you? Very, very good indeed, man. How about you, Dej? How are you, how are you doing? Yeah, 
I'm blessed, happy that Prem is finally upon us. Like we've been waiting for it. so long. Finally, long away. it feels like a, a, an age has passed. Honestly, since we've seen a, 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 the last Premier League game, so I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure you guys are as well. And 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 let it commence, man. Um, uh, as always, we're we're joined also by a very very special guest indeed. And uh, this gentleman's um, reputation precedes him for being a, a man with an eye for talent. Um, uh, a, a keen attention to detail um, and, and getting very, very um, shrewd business over the line. Um, I liken him to uh, Geppetto of, um, of, <laughs> of Pinocchio. He's behind the scenes pulling all the strings. Without further ado, we welcome the sporting director of Norwich Football Club, Stuart Webber, to the platform. Welcome, Stuart. Welcome, 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 Stuart. Thank you, yeah. How Thank you, Stuart. Well, very well, thanks. You know, it's crazy because I've been like a massive admirer of your work and what you're doing at Norwich is, is amazing, Stu. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. No, listen, it's an honour to be here. It's great, the work you're doing. I've listened to um, the Brendan Rodgers one and Michael Beale so far. Um, so, yeah, you know, you're doing some good work. I mean, it's great what you're doing is trying to dig a little bit deeper than the normal. Um, you know, and I've liked... The way you certainly with with Michael and, and with Brendan, how you spoke to them about their careers and how they've got there, because they they probably come through similar journeys to myself, i.e., not being, you know, maybe blessed with a fantastic footballing career. So I think uh, no, it's really good what you're doing, and um, anything I can do to help is it's an honour. Thank you very much. No, we appreciate Thank that. Appreciate that, Stuart. And of course, you know, given the fact that Project Restart, we know that you're a busy guy, so uh, you taking this time out to have a, a chat with us is, is really really appreciated. My pleasure. Where we wanted to start, Stuart, is um, your your role in layman's terms. Um, and the reason why it's important for us to sort of deep dive into what you do on a day-to-day basis is because, you know, we have um, uh, spoken to Les Ferdinand recently, who's obviously uh, at QPR, and you guys are in similar roles. Um, but your roles have so many different definitions. So you've done clubs, a sporting director, somewhere else, a director of football, head of recruitment. Um, And so, you know, fans can very easily be confused by these different terms and um, and these different titles. So I guess in layman's terms, could you just explain what your role entails and what you do on a day-to-day basis in your role? Yeah, I think, as you say, the roles um, in this country, especially slightly different um, for each club. You know, every club has their own sort of take on it. And, and I think it's still, it's still relatively new in our country, um, maybe compared to what it's been, you know, on, on the continent. But, you know, effectively, my, my job is to, to sort of look after, lead um, the sort of medium and long term sort of football strategy for the, for the club. Um, so, you know, my, my, I report directly to the board. Um, you know, and the key areas I oversee is, is obviously you know, the, the, the head coach, um, recruitment, um, sports science and medical, the uh, academy, um, and the, and also the head of comms here. Actually, the, the, the media sort of department because that's a big part of, of you know setting the narrative and, and sort of stuff like. That. So it's over them departments. But you know, if I'm honest, the, the sort of roles effectively is, is what how you're deemed is, in my opinion, as if you're a success in this role is how good the players are that you sign, how good the businesses you do, uh, players in and out, um, and how good you are at a point in the right head coach. Um, and I think if you get them them three factors right, you can be a real success in the role. Whereas if I'm outstanding at sports science, 
but terrible at recruitment of coaches or players, then to be honest, I probably would fail in the role. I think, you know, it's, um, there's lots of factors to the role, such as sports science and, and et cetera, et cetera. But fundamentally, it's about getting them key decisions right on, on with the coach, um, recruitment of the players, when to trade, when not to trade, how do you get value, how do you succession plan your squad, how do you make a plan for the young players, um, how does that plan get executed, um, how do you create the, the culture and environment which makes it safe um, to play young players and to develop players where you know every every sort of staff member feels invested in that um, so I would say they're the, they're the sort of the key sort of day-to-day parts of my role um, and at times it's tough to balance because you know I get as caught up um, on a match to anyone else because it, it means so much you know when you see how hard uh, the staff and the players work um, of course on a Saturday afternoon you want you want them um, to get a rewards for that, but sometimes um, you have to step back from that as well and look at the you know the bigger picture and and, and that's a massive part of my role is is keeping you know the board and, and people calm and and keep keep people on the plan because if we go off the plan too much and too often, you know then you start making changes too often and then you change how you do things and then it ends up going wrong. Whereas I think you know success in my opinion in football can only be built in the mid term, if you have a plan, you stick to it, you develop it and you're constantly trying to make um, what you're doing better as opposed to getting too caught up in just what happens on a Saturday afternoon. Because let's be honest, you can lose a game of football um, by a referee doing you, by a human being making the mistake because that's yeah. what players are, they're humans. Um, and you can lose by bad luck, you know, and likewise you can win on all of them ways, you know. And, um, you know, I remember the start of the season we got promoted, for example, we lost three of the first five games and Bolton, I think, won three of the first five, you know, and we won the league and, and they finished bottom. And uh, But if you remember, if you watch them games, the games they won, in my opinion, very fortunate to win. Um, the games we lost, you know, some of our best performances that season came in, came in them games that we lost, you know. So um, I think it's about understanding at that time that it's a process and, and you've got to stick with people and you've got to see it through if you truly believe in it. Yeah, so Stuart, on our show, we like to, you know, go through the careers of um, of our interviewees, and you've had a very unorthodox career so far. You know, starting at Wrexham under Dean Saunders, working as part of the ground staff. So, if you could just take us back to those days and how it was as a youngster, you know, forging a career in the game. Yeah, so like like a lot of young people, you know, I sort of left school. Um, had no real direction or, or knowing what I wanted to do, but and the only thing I knew I loved was um, was football. Um, but unfortunately, I wasn't good enough to play it, um, you know, at a high, at a high level. Um, so I made a real early decision when I was sixteen as to, okay, I want to try and get involved in the game in, in a different way. And um, so I started embarking on my coaching badges um, because I was like, well, okay, I'll, I'll give that a go academically. I, I was poor um, in school. Later found out I was dyslexic, which I don't think helped my ability in school. But um, so I decided to do my coaching badges, and then um, what I did, I left. I lived in a small town in Mid Wales called Aberystwyth, and that's where I was from. And um, I left there and moved up to North Wales, and I actually went to a college and, and um, started studying horticulture. Um, not because I wanted to be a gardener or grounds or whatever, but I needed to do something, and I needed to try and you know pick a trade or, or whatever whilst working on coaching and behind the scenes. And then I was really lucky I got offered a job. Um, I'd done some work experience at Wrexham on the pitches, cutting the pitches and stuff. And, and um, the guy who was doing it left. So they offered me 
job full time. So I, I went there full time and it's brilliant because I'd go in early in the morning, cut the pitches, make them all look great, mark them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, stand back and watch the first team train, you know, and at the time it was, it was under Dean's, uh, not Dean's son, it was uh, Dennis Smith to start with in League One. And um, he, um, he'd let me watch training and, you know, he'd managed a thousand games. Um, you know, we had some good players. We had people like Carlos Edwards, who went on to play for Sunderland in the Premier League. Uh, Dennis Lawrence, who went to Swansea. Um, Darren Ferguson um, was Peter Bramanza now, who was in midfield. Um, so good players, you know. So was, you know, uh, Chris Armstrong came, actually, if you remember him from um, memories at Tottenham. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. He started at Wrexham as a kid, funny enough, but Palace and then Tottenham and then came at the end of his career back to Wrexham. And, you know, so, you you know, I was watching, you know, good players, good levels sort of training every day and then they'd finish and I'd go on the pitch and fix them. And then um, after a couple of months, I think I'd done up to whatever, my B licence or something. And, and I said to the, uh, the academy manager, I said, listen, I said, can I come and do some coaching in the academy? Because at, at that time I was coaching of an evening in like uh, junior teams, you know, I was doing um, girls teams, I was doing disabled teams, I was doing anything I could do I'd just go out and coach um, for no money but just to get the experience and to learn about you know, how to teach people because I, you know, I, I needed the experience um, and then I said to the academy manager at Wrexham at the time what was Wrexham what it was back then I said um, you know any chance I could coach a team here I said don't pay him no interest but I said you know I want to work a bit and he said yeah no problem uh, come for six months do the under 12s and they used to I realise now why I got given that team they used to train um, always at nine o'clock, um, no, half seven on a Friday night. So no one else wanted to do it. So at first I was like, oh, this is because I'm doing this team. And then after about two weeks, I was like, okay, I'm now locking up. So it actually, it's the easy way so everyone could go home on a Friday night. And um, But it's brilliant because I had my own team and they were good players. You know, we had um, a player called Elliot Hewitt played in that team. He went on to play for, I think play for Ipswich, and to Ipswich when they were in the championship. Um, you know, but that's some good players. And it was, you know, it was a great level, and I loved it. It was brilliant. You know, um, have my own team at the, you know that level of of players, and then um, and then the head of youth at the time was a guy called um, Steve Cooper. He left to join to Liverpool um, as uh, well, coaching role he had there. He's obviously the Swansea manager now, yeah, and yeah. Um, he um, I got uh, made head of youth then at Wrexham when I was, I was young. I was like twenty two or something, and then I was coaching the under 18s and, and overseeing the, and the youth. Of, uh, there, which was brilliant because I literally did every job, you know, from coaching the under 18s and, and taking them, working with a guy called Joey Jones, who played for Liverpool in the 70s, won two European Cups, tough, toughest man I've ever met, um, you know, to washing the kit on a Sunday morning and, and that. So it's like like brilliant apprenticeship because you sort of literally had to do everything. And um, and then I got offered a chance to go to Liverpool, um, but on the scouting side, and at first it was a job. Uh, to scout like uh, the real young players sort of under eights under nines and I weren't overly excited about that I was excited about Liverpool of course but I was like oh, you know I love watching the kids and I still love coming here on a Sunday now at Norwich and I'm watching the kids because it's just pure football it's just they don't care they've got no worries they're playing because they love it but I was like oh, I'm not sure about that so I went and spoke to them and we didn't agree something. And then anyway, soon after, a couple of months later, they had a big change there. And a guy called Frank McParland went in as academy director. And, uh, he said, come and see me. So I went and saw him. He said, listen, come in, do this role for a while. He says, I promise you, if you're any good, you'll, I'll promote you really quick. So I looked at him and thought, okay, no, I believe you. So let, let's have a go. So I went to Liverpool then uh, in 2009, I think it was around that time. Um, 
I'm true to his word very quickly. He was there, Damien Kamuli came in as director of football and, and they promoted me to, I had some sexy title, director of academy recruitment or something. And um, it was brilliant. But I was, within six months, I got promoted to that. And, and that was brilliant because suddenly then I was traveling all around the world. I went to Vietnam, I went to China. Um, I was constantly in Europe. I remember one month I only slept in my own bed, my own bed three nights. Um, wow. Because I was in Europe, not with women. I mean, I was uh, working. Great um, <laughs> 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 story, but it, it was work. I'm afraid. Um, but, um, but it's brilliant because you know I was watching the best players in the world at 14, 15, 16, 17, and um, it was amazing. And uh, yeah, I had some incredible experiences. And then three years later, Damien left. Um, and Brendan Rodgers came in. It was a, a sort of the change after Kenny. I was manager and, and at that point I knew I wanted to work in the first team and um, that would have happened under Damien I think and, and Kenny and uh, the guys came in um, it was um, Dave Fallows Michael Edwards and uh, Barry Hunter and they said oh listen you know we'd love you to stay um, and I'm like well I want to go work at first team level and at that time there was no role there um, so I said listen I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave because you know I want to go and work at first team level now I feel like I'm ready to take that step um, and that's when I went to QPR who were in the Premier League at the time it was Mark Hughes was manager Mike Rigg was director of football and um, yeah that was a tough experience of first team football you know, that was that was really hard because it was um, well we didn't win any games it was uh, it was a crazy sort of period it wasn't what I expected it wanted uh, but it was a magnificent experience and, uh, and I look back on with you know some regrets but also quite fondly of oh, I learned so much in that time because of how hard it was um, and then Mark Hughes got sacked in the December and I got offered a job um, at Wolves to go in as head of recruitment and I actually took a pay cut to go there because it was like I need to get out of QPR this is about being rude it's, it's, a, it's a mess it wasn't what I expected um, and it's a shame as well because the owner a guy called Tony Fernandes was a really good guy you know he had great intentions but mm. uh, um, yeah it just it wasn't for me. So I left, went to Wolves, um, and we got relegated that season. So it was like QPR got relegated from the Premier League and Wolves got relegated from the Championship. That was my first season of um, senior football. So I'm thinking, oh, well, this is, maybe this isn't for me. Um, get back on the phone to Liverpool, see if they want me, but they didn't. <laughs> but, um, but no, I, I stayed at Wolves and, and you know, we got promoted the next season from League One with record points, which is great you know, and, and brilliant to have that experience. And then the next season in the Championship, we actually finished seventh, level on points with fifth and sixth. So we missed out on the playoffs. And um, it was at the end of that season, I got a call from Huddersfield to go and talk to them about going in as head of football operations, which is sporting director, really, but just a different title. Stuart, can I, can I just interject very quickly? I just want to quickly go back to your time at Liverpool because I think, in my opinion, that was a very important and poignant moment in your journey to date. And obviously, you got bought in in 2009, I think, and Rafa Benitez was the manager. But going to Liverpool, did that expand your football knowledge because you were working with staff, you know, that were multicultural. You had Rafa Benitez, you had, you know, Rodolfo Burrell, you had so many people. Pep Segura. Pep Segura. Yeah, yeah. You had so many people that knew the game inside out. Do you think that almost broadened your horizon on the way you look at the game today? Yeah, 100%. I met, you met, you mentioned one of the guys there, a guy called Pep Segura. And probably, if I'm honest, until I'd met him or worked with him, he made me feel so inadequate 
not in a bad way. Um, and so like I had no knowledge at all wow. because he had so much knowledge. And I remember I'd drive home from that academy feeling like, oh, I'm not good enough to work here. I'm miles off where this guy is in terms of his knowledge. And, um, but it was frightening, but it was an incredible experience with him and, and the staff there every day because we had Rodolfo Barella, like you said, Mike Marsh, who played 100 games for Liverpool and is now Swansea assistant manager. Steve Cooper was there. Um, unbelievable experience. You know, we had like head physio was a guy called Dave Galley who'd worked with England and stuff. So it's just everywhere he looked was like top class people. And I was 20, uh, when was it, 2009? 24, 25. You know, so I was a kid, you know, where I didn't feel it at the time because, you know, you're all macho and you think you're good enough or whatever. But when I look back, I was like, wow, I knew absolutely nothing. And um, Pep Segura taught me so much without even knowing it. Um, but I've learned so much from him in terms of how to set up a squad, how to set up a team, um, the importance of repetition within your work. If you want to, uh, if you want people to become the best, they've got to practice, 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 repetition, repetition. How they, um, how they would get their ideas across tactically, even to younger kids. So, you know, we, we, were, uh, we were going through the phase and I don't know if you guys remember, but it was, everything was just let them play, let the kids play, let the kids play. He was like, no, 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 you don't, you don't do that. And then, and then you'd watch how he would work and then you'd watch Barcelona the night on TV and you'd go, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's what he's creating here. And, and he was, um, or he is a genius, you know, and, I, and funnily enough, I met him about two, well, before COVID, I went and had dinner with him out in, in Barcelona because I wanted to pick his brain on a couple of things that I was having challenges with that I needed a different sort of perspective on. And um, yeah, he's outstanding. But I learned so much in that period because... You know, it was the first time I'd been exposed to, like, world-class staff. You know, Damien Camoli is director of football. You know, he'd obviously been at Arsenal, Tottenham, um, spoke four languages or whatever. And, you know, yeah, just the expertise of these people was off the scale. You know, I, I came from Wrexham thinking I knew it all. Uh, like we all do when you're young, you know. I think, <laughs> right? You know, um, yeah. you know, interestingly, I thought Brendan Rodgers said it well on, on the bit he did review about Liverpool. He said, yeah, I was 40 then. You know, I'm a different guy now, you know, and... and and that's someone who's 40, you know, so not, yeah, he's young in a manager's term, but it's still pretty experienced. And, and I think, you know, you, you have to live through that though, of where you think you know it all and you get a few slaps and then you, you work out you don't know it all. And then hindsight is brilliant to, to think back on. But yeah, no, they, them guys were brilliant. And then also the level of player, you know, we, we, we you know, we signed Raheem Sterling, Jordan Ibe, Shea Ojo, we had Connor Cody in the building, Jack Robinson in the building. So, um, good players, you know, yeah. top players, you know, watching and, them uh, work every day, you know, was, was just different, you know, when Andre Wisdom was playing, you know, like they, they're go on for fantastic players, you know, we've gone out to have great careers and, you know, you're seeing them work every day and, and how they do it and, you know, you learn off them, even though some of them were 15, 16, I'd learn from them watching them going, oh yeah, look how professional these guys are, even though he's 15 or 16 and still in school. Yes, yeah, so another name we mentioned in passing was Michael Edwards. He's seen right now as, you know, one of the greats of what he does. People mention him in the same terms as Chiki Berikstein, Mladen Sormaz at Leicester as well. When you met him, could you tell that, you know, this guy had something special in terms of combining that data analysis with watching players? Because when you look at Liverpool's recruitment recently, you can count, you know, on one finger, the sort of, you know, the number of failed signings that they've made. So could you tell at that point that, this guy was heading to the top? Uh, to be honest, no. Uh, but I thought it was intriguing because for me, it was my first real exposure to, to data. 
you know, it's probably just about being talked about in England then, you know. Um, and it was fascinating seeing someone who's incredibly clever academically um, and was very different to anything I'd come across in football before. You know, you, let's be honest, you're used to sort of meeting football, football people. I don't really like that term, but you know what I mean by that. Um, he wasn't. He was different. And, uh, and I was quite intrigued by it. And I think, you know, and, and you'd have to ask him, but I, I look at his career at Liverpool where he's done, let's be honest, outrageous um, but probably not at the start, you know, probably some of that went wrong at the start, you know, I'm sure you could talk about, I don't know, Markovic, who cost £20 million, I can't even tell you who he's playing now, you know, it's, then all the success, and I think what I would love to ask him, or would be interested for, to hear is, has he also developed over 10 years to be more understanding of the human need of a player, and the human need of what player fits with which coach, and whatever, and I, I think if I look at Liverpool's recruitment respectfully as an outsider, I think they have absolutely nailed the yes, but this is what the head coach will do. And if we can get part of the ingredients, he will turn him into this magnificent cake. And I think that's a bit they've got right. Whereas I think sometimes, maybe before, there are some great ingredients, but it's like, yeah, but you've got the wrong chef, so it doesn't actually matter. <laughs> um, you, you know, obviously, we can all be yeah. like Delia Smith. If you give us all the same ingredients, we won't make the same cake. She'll yeah. make a better one because she'll know how to put them together. Um, yeah. Whereas you give her the rubbish ingredients, she'll make just as bad a cake as us. But it's about it's about that. And I think um, it'd be an interesting question. You should get him on here and, and ask him that. If um... Are you close with him? Do you have any contact with him now? Thanks, Stuart. I know where you're going. Thanks, Stuart. Do you know what, Stuart? I wanted to touch um, on something that you mentioned a little while back when you were talking about your early days in your career and, and having to go out and scout really, really young players. Um, and it's something that we see um, across clubs now more frequently in that, um, you know, clubs are going after players a lot younger and, of, of course, expanding their academies. And, and then, you know, there's, there's that real emphasis on homegrown talent and and nurturing those players through the academy. So when you're scouting players at that age, say, when they're, you know, uh, primary school, secondary school and whatnot, how does that differ from scouting players who are much more experienced? What are the kind of, what are the qualities that you look for at that age? Um, and how does it differ from, from someone who, who's had a few years uh, under their belt uh, playing at the top level? I think it's different. I think when you're looking at, really, really young players, so let's say, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds. Um, the game changes when they get to 12 because there's only got 11 aside and there's offside to deal with and the pitch is bigger and potentially an athletic profile is different. You know, you can have a fantastic player at under nines and tens, but then physically when he gets to a big pitch, it, it might be hard for him to adapt and some never adapt to it because, you know, if, if nature hasn't given them a certain uh, athletic ability. It's, it's very hard to become a footballer at the top level now. You know, there's not many players in the Premier League who can't run as a, let's, let's, be, let's be honest. So, um, but I think when you look at the young ones, I always used to just think you wanted them to show you some moments that they could just be different. Um, you know, I would be, and I'm really big now on players understanding the game. And I think you can, certain players at a young age do, get it quicker than others in terms of when I say understanding the game I don't mean 
being incredibly tactically disciplined, but understanding that, you know, if they're playing a one-two, the type of movement they make, need to make. If they're a midfielder, checking their shoulders. You know, if they're centre-backs, where their body position is, do they get side on? If they're a centre-forward, the type of runs they make in the box. You know, I think you can see that instinctively with, with lots of young players and you can see good habits. They don't always make the right little. You can see the ones you go, oh, you know what, you're a bright footballer. You might not know he's a bright footballer, but you can see that he gets the type of movements that he, he needs to make. Um, and I like that because, in my opinion, when you get a higher level, you get when you want to become professional footballers, I think you've either got to be physically outstanding or in my opinion you've got to have outstanding um brain stroke mindset you know and and i think then things develop quite early and um i think it can often be missed as well and i think physically maybe not because anyone can see someone who looks physically outstanding but sometimes the brain seen a player that yeah but you know what he knows how to play football you know it, it's um i find it fascinating with you know but i love watching the kids i love watching coming here on a sunday watching the academy uh, I remember we got promoted last year on the Saturday night and I got home at about midnight I think because it was a late kick-off and it was brilliant. Next Sunday morning, bang in, I think we were playing Arsenal under-14s. It was brilliant. You know, we've just been promoted but it was like, yes, I can't wait to go in. Brought my little lad to me and you're watching them. You're watching how they develop and, and, and stuff. It's, it's, it's still the best thing. It's still the most pleasing thing for me in the job is watching young players, watching a young player's journey, the, the struggles that he has to go through, um, you know, watching them mature, watching that moment that they, they make their debut and, and, you know, they survive through it and the first time they have to do an interview and stuff. I think it's, for me, it's the best part of the being involved in football is, is watching young young people achieve, achieve their dreams. It's brilliant. You just can't beat it. Stuart, you're, you know, one of the most um, highly regarded um, young um, sporting directors in, in football right now. And I think um, during your time at Huddersfield, um, you were the man, you know, that was integral in bringing in David Wagner. Um, I just want to fast forward a little back bit, but we're going to go back to Huddersfield. During your time at Norwich, you brought in another German, Daniel Fark. And a lot of people say, you know what you're looking for when you're looking at a manager and you like that German sort of mentality. Hence why you brought in David Wagner and Daniel Fark. What is it about... German managers that you tend to to really take to. Yeah, I love a German. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <out> um, <laughs> but um, no, I think when we take it back to Huddersfield uh, and we appointed David, it was I'd been entrusted in trying to find the, the new the next sort of head coach for, for Huddersfield, and I spoke to the owner. Would you accept for and blah blah blah? Yes. Um, and when I when I did some research, I, I tried to look across what would fit best into the championship um, as a mentality? What, what leagues are the closest to ours? And, and I kept coming back to German football and English football, uh, in my opinion, the, the two most comparable. You know, the second Bundesliga in the championship, it's the two closest. Um, and the Bundesliga in the Premier League, I think it's really hard to compare, for example, Segunda um, in Spain in the championship. It's almost, it could be a different sport some days or Holland. To, you know, it, it can be different. Whereas I looked at the Germans, I looked at the mentality and felt, okay, that works. Then when you then go deeper, um, over the last sort of 10, 15 years, they've worked so hard on their um, coaching sort of education, if you like. And they've turned into, I believe, they've turned coaching into a real sort of profession. Um, and they take it extremely serious. And to get your pro license in Germany is very, very difficult. Um, so... 
you know, them as students of the game. And then you sort of see the amount who are successfully um, transforming from under-23 football into into first-team football. And it was like, okay, there's something going on out there. Um, And that's how it came about with David. And and he got recommended to to us. And then I went and met him and, and, and the sort of rest is history. And then after that, we sort of set up a system to sort of scout potential future head coaches and a system we use here as well. Um, and Daniel was on that and he was someone that we were constantly monitoring. So I was first speaking to Daniel when I was at working at Huddersfield, just in case David left or whatever. Um, so I think it's what I like about the Germans in particular, to go back to is extremely structured, um, very disciplined. They've got a way of working. Um, they're pretty stubborn with it, which I like. Um, I like people who have a way of working, believe in it and work on it every day rather than, all oh, right, we've got beat free another weekend. Right. I'm going to rip all that up. I'm going to do this for this week. Oh, we won 2-1. Brilliant. We'll keep doing that. Oh, no, we've lost again. Now we need to drive something. Anyway, I can't, I can't hack that. I can't hack that the training week changes because of one result or because of emotion of, right, we've lost, right. They're all going to be in tomorrow. We're going to run and miss that. Just treat it properly this is you know it's, it's a process so um so i like that about germany but what I, what I must say is um i like spanish coaches a lot but there's a challenge with the language there to be honest less they're less good at english than say a german is um but i also believe that um english coaches are well on the way up as well i, I truly believe that we are going to have a trend soon in our country much like germany's had let's say for the last 10 years i think in 10 years people will be talking about oh, the last 10 years of English coaches has been really good because I truly believe the work that you know Dan Ashworth and Gareth Southgate and these guys did at the FA, I don't think the fruits of their labour are quite through yet, but I think they're about to be picked, you know, and, and I think people like Steve Cooper um, are hopefully sort of, you know, the sort of start of that, of people getting that opportunity and he's doing really well at Swansea and, and sort of them growing and I think that will give more confidence then to owners chief execs sporting directors or whatever because I think a lot of it guys when you're appointing one is it's a brave decision to appoint Dave Wagner it's a brave decision to appoint Daniel Fark because if it goes wrong people are queuing up to go told you so like we had it here in the first year when you know we finished 14th you know I got so much stick of people going yeah you just copy what you did at um, Huddersfield hoping you'd bring in the door and 23 coaching at work and it's like a bit more respect from a work than that but you know you've got to be brave to make these calls a bit like giving a young player opportunity you've got to be brave or signing a player that no one's ever heard of you've got to be brave um and I just hope that some of the young English coaches coming through you know even I know okay Lampard and Gerard have been world-class players so maybe it's slightly different but hopefully they'll continue to be successful so it will give owners maybe a bit more bravery to go, okay, maybe I won't give this job to respect. You know, He's had 40 jobs previously. Let's give it to a young one. I think, you know, Russell Martin, who obviously came, was here, uh, was captain here doing it, really good things at MK Dons. And, and, you know, that's obviously a club that's traditionally given so many young English coaches a chance. Um, you know, so I think they're there. I think it's, we just need some success stories to give more opportunities so that then confidence grows, you know? What we want to do, we want to go back to your time at Huddersfield because for me, that was like a miracle. I remember before, obviously, David came in, Chris Powell was the manager and obviously he was relieved of his duties and some key acquisitions was Aramoy and Elias Kachunga and they were very, very pivotal, you know, in turning your fortunes around and, you know, making sure the season 
in, in promotion. Yeah. Dean Hoyle was the owner at the time. And he was a man that, you know, seemed to get involved. He was, he wanted the best for the club. So if you could explain to us briefly that turnaround, you know, that rags to riches story from Huddersfield coming to the Premier League. Yeah, to be honest, it was, it was a fairy tale, to be honest. So um, we sacked Chris in the November and appointed David in the November. And it was that season we finished 19th in the championship. Everyone forgets that. That season, Chris Powell had still had a better points per game than David did. Um, it's marginal, but it did. And um, that summer, we signed 14 new players. So we signed, for example, Danny Ward, the goalkeeper on loan from Liverpool. Uh, we signed Chris Lerver, uh, Heffingler, uh, Kachunga, Moy, um, Casey Palmer, um, Rajiv Van Lepara. And yeah, the, the, the turnaround was incredible. But I'll never forget, we played Liverpool in a pre-season friendly um, and Trent Alexander-Arnold played his 17 at the time. I think it was one of his first sort of senior games, only friendly, and it was outrageous. But anyway, but Aaron Moy played. And we knew Moy was a good player. Um, how good, we, if we're honest, we didn't know how good. We knew he was a good player, but I'll never forget Dean Whitehead played him. Obviously, 300 odd Premier League games, etc., etc. He's come off the pitch and give it like the old puff of the cheeks and was like, I'm telling you, he is a proper player. Talking about Aaron Moy. And I remember that moment I spoke to David after the game and said, that is something when another player who's talking about a player who could take his, probably will take his place in the team has just gone, no, no, he's, he's a proper player. And, and he was, and to be honest, we just hit it off. I mean, Casey Palmer, it was his first um, senior experience. I remember he scored in his debut against Brentford, his first kick of senior football, which is brilliant. Um, Kachunga was outstanding. I remember we played Norwich away, actually, on a Friday night. We beat him 2-1, and uh, Kachunga scored two live on Sky, and... Um, yeah, it was brilliant. It was, it was a fairy tale, and and you know we got everything. We got every decision right, if I'm honest. That that season, in terms of pre-season tour, pre-season friendlies, who we signed, we had no injuries. You know, because um, what people often forget is for the first six months of that season, we only had Naki Wells as a striker. <laughs> we had no other striker, um, and then in, in, in that season, was he came that in the January. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So we signed him in the January and we signed Izzy Brown as well on loan in January from Chelsea. He spent the first half of the season at Rotherham. So we brought both of them in and, and Izzy sort of played as a 10 with Casey. Um, and then um, and then Colin was like our second choice um, sort of striker behind Naki really. Um, and yeah, but everything went, went, which could go well, went well. I remember we drew at Villa Park and I think the third game, we were 1-0 down, we batted and we hit the bar. I think last minute, uh, Michael Heffler sent the forward, set uh, the back, massive big centre back's gone up front. He chased the keeper down. He's hit the ball against him. It's gone in, and it's a bit like it was like it was. If I'm honest, I'd love to say it was just brilliant work from us all, but you know we also had some luck as well, which you need. You know that's, you do need, but yeah, it's a fairy tale and it was brilliant. And for Dean, I was so happy because he's a great guy. Invested so much money in that club, so much time into the club. Genuinely loved it. You know he's a proper fan. He used to stand on the terraces when he was a kid and all that sort of stuff. And Huddersfield lad and and. You know, what that did for that community as well is beyond the football club, it, it regenerated a community, uh, which more community, if I'm honest, up there. Um, and it Normally so, had a rugby, you know, fan base sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it did, yeah, because they had yeah. the, um, the, like, Super League rugby team mm. there, the Giants, I think they're called, Huddersfield Giants. And, um, yeah, football, I mean, I remember we had a game, we played MK Dons in the Championship 
the first season we were there, one of Chris's last games, there's about 7,000 fans there. They just didn't really care. Do you know what I mean? And um, so, yeah, that no, is a fairy tale, but it's brilliant. And, you know, that's, I think that's why we're all involved in football sometimes, is for them moments where you see something like that happen is, is great, isn't it? You know, it's, it's what it should be about. You know, it should be, everyone should, you know, be able to dream a little bit, whatever club they're at, that they can achieve something um, pretty special. You mentioned it in passing a little earlier when you were talking about your time at QPR working with Tony Fernandez, and of course it was a whirlwind of a, of a season. Um, you know there were a lot of uh, comings and goings at the, at the club. Um, I think in total there were eighteen players that were signed over that season, and, and, and twenty five in total that went out on, on um, either out on loan or, or, or were sold. Um, some more notable names are Christopher Samba, who you know, was um, widely reported, came in on a uh, hundred grand a week. And, uh, Esteban Granero, who, who came in from Real Madrid, Blake Remy uh, from Marseille, Julio and, and say again, Julio Cesar. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the goalkeeper, um, yeah, 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 yeah. There was there, there was there was quite a few there was quite a few um quite a few signings there, right? And and of course it 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 didn't culminate in, in, in what the ambition of the club was. Um, and and, and at, the, at the end of the season, the, the, the club were, were relegated. And I guess if you could condense that down to um, just like one key takeaway for, for, uh, for you over the time, what would, what would you say you, you learned from, from that experience? The importance of culture. If you don't have the right culture, you've got zero chance. And if you've got the wrong culture, because at that time, the money the club had was literally unlimited. Hence, all them players that you've just reeled off. But it was actually irrelevant because the culture was that bad that I think you could have plucked Messi and Ronaldo in there and it still would have gone wrong. You know, it just wasn't... It just wasn't right. People, in my opinion, people were going to that club for the wrong reasons. They, they weren't going there to play for QPR or represent that club or that part of London or whatever. They were going... And um, and I think it showed on the pitch. You know, I think it showed um, yeah badly on the pitch, unfortunately. And um, yeah, yeah. Like I say, I, I look back on that time and think, if you get your culture wrong, it's how bad it can go. You know, and I remember, in fairness, you know, I, I was on the periphery of it really, and I, I couldn't affect anything there, which was one of my major sort of frustrations. But I get it as well. But um, you know, I remember seeing those players there, like Sean Derry. Um, Clint Hill, people who got the club promoted and you know did care in fairness, and you know they're sat in a canteen watching players turn up on 10, 15 times the amount of money that they're on, and you know that causes resentment, you know, and and I think that's only human nature, you know, if you feel you've done brilliant for a club, and it was a massive takeaway I learned for when we got promoted here actually, was being really making sure you look after the ones who've gone really well for you um, and done really well for your organisation. Even if maybe you'd question if some of them are going to be maybe good enough for the next level, but in terms of keeping that harmony and the culture and people who care for the club, I far more important because then I don't think you run the risk of wrecking the club. You know, you might still get relegated, but the club's not wrecked. Whereas, you know, if you look at QPR, you know, I don't know what what how what how Les spoke about it, but I still get the feeling they're still trying to recover from that period. Yeah, now. that's what you said. Um, mm-hmm. That is sad for you think of QPR as a club. I don't know how old you guys are, but you know, when I was, they were like 
in the Premier League in '94, when Les Ferdinand and remember Trevor Sinclair with that ridiculous bicycle kick and stuff. Yeah, you know, they're like one of our traditional clubs, aren't they? You know, in this mm-hmm. country, they're sort of, you know, you think yeah, not the biggest club or whatever. We know that, but they are a proper traditional club, aren't mm-hmm. they? And you know, it's wrong that that can happen. And, and the owner, you know, I look back for the owner and think he spent so much money and had so much. He was so desperate for it to be successful, but yeah, it didn't. It didn't work out, unfortunately. So, Stuart, we want to move on to, you know, the role that you're doing currently. And obviously, I heard you um, speak earlier on in the season on Football Daily, um, the BBC podcast. And you were, you know, telling people that it's important for you to be seen with the manager, win, lose or draw. Why, why is that important to you? I think it's important to show players, staff, supporters even, that you're together and that we're trying to be successful here and not I'm trying to be successful or we got beat. It's more important when we lose, to be honest, um, that he feels that support and people see that he is getting that support. Um, see, when you win, to be honest, it, it, it's far less important. You know, back end of the last season, was it didn't matter. But when things aren't going right, because I, it's only my beliefs, but I think it's really important to not show people that there's any cracks not show mm. people that there's any um, chance that, oh, you know, we've had a couple of bad results because, you know, we all know what this fo- what football is like, you know, a few bad results and, and pressure comes on and people start questioning what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I like things in the bud quickly um, because, yeah, I just don't think it's right. I don't like speculation around training grounds of people going, oh, you know what it's like that? Oh, I've mm. lost a few games. You know, Stuart hasn't spoke to the manager. You know, I haven't been seen yeah. together. You know, Yeah, but like Stuart, can so sure, can't that be like counterproductive? Because can't some players think, hold on, the technical director is always around now. I don't really get it. We're losing games. Why why is he around? Is does this mean the manager's getting sacked? So how do you like make sure the message is clear that you just need to spend time with him to build that chemistry with him? Yeah, I think the being around bits crucial. So, you know, what I must add, it doesn't mean I'm suddenly travelling on the coach to games or <laughs> that's probably the moment that they'd go that's a bit odd I'm on about them seeing us stood together at the end of training out on the training pitch or sat having breakfast together you know we would always hear pre-covid um you know if we're both in the training ground we'll have breakfast together doesn't mean we have it every day because some days we're not on the training ground at the same time or whatever but um just to give that so it's not and, and I think the most important thing with it sorry is it's consistent so win, lose, or draw, they don't see people don't see oh winning every you know, look at Stu knocking around the dressing room or oh losing every week he's here. It's consistent of actually win, lose or draw. No, no, you'll see the same face and you'll see me doing the same actions. Of course I might be thinking different things in my head and behind closed doors and that, that's fine because at times tough decisions have to be made or whatever. But it's not showing that to the outside. It's not letting people feel that like, oh, is there a change imminent because you, know, you want people focused on the on the job in hand and, and worried about being the best they can be, not worried about you know politics, which uh, sometimes you know get involved in was every walk of life, but certainly football. Yeah, when you look at the players that Norwich currently possess, you know Ben Godfrey, Jamal Lewis, Max Ahrens, you know Buendia, he's a very very talented player, <laughs> and uh, you told the story of how he came to the club and how you were you know spent in the boardroom meetings trying to get that deal done. So if you could just explain to us the lengths that you went to get Buendia because he's a talented talented boy. 
Yeah, he's an interesting one. I mean, uh, I can take no credit for finding him. Um, that was all to the uh, to the scouting department and, and the data guys. But I remember um, Kieran Scott, who's our head of recruitment, saying to me, listen, there's this player here in Spain. Um, you need to look at him, but we're going to have to be quick. So I was like, oh, okay. So I looked at him and to be honest, within three minutes, I was like, okay, show me more of this guy. Um, and then I rang uh, an agent in Madrid who I know well and said, listen, there's this guy. He's on loan from Getafe, which is obviously in Madrid. Um, you know, what's the situation? Just find out the situation. And he goes, well, funny enough, he's actually with our partner, uh, who's um, Argentina. Like, okay. And actually, Getafe are skint. They need some money. So there could be a deal here. I was like, oh, okay. We've got no money. So what are we going to do? So um, <laughs> I got on straight away to the finance director. And I said, listen, I rang him. I said, I need to come see you. I was at the training ground and, and I had to go to the stadium for about 20 minutes. Are you in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to come see you. I said, don't go to the stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I go to see him. I said, listen, could be an opportunity here um, to make some incredible um, business, to make some really big money in the future. I said, but you've got to give me one and a half million quid now, which I know we haven't got. He said, all oh, right, what's the course? I explained. And I've gone, the other thing, just so you know, we're going to sign him now in January, but we can't actually get him until the summer because he's locked in on a loan. So you're not even going to see him for six months. So luckily, trust was built up and the rapport was there and we just sold Alex Pritchard to Huddersfield, ironically. So there was a bit of money coming in and I'm like, listen, this will be Pritchard's replacement, but unfortunately not until next summer. So um, anyway, fair play to him. He found the money somehow and we got the deal done. It was then a really complicated deal to be honest. So... Um, I went, I flew to Madrid. I remember meeting Emmy at one o'clock in the morning in a hotel. Uh, um, he couldn't speak a word of English. My Spanish wasn't particularly great, but we, we, we managed to get through it. <laughs> well, sign language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want food? <laughs> We've all done it, haven't we? So, um, <laughs> so yeah, he... Um, and then it was like really complicated because we had to do a pre-agreement with Getafe to give us the option to buy him in the summer. Um, we had to do a pre-agreement with the player, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, we did it and it great. And he's, he's done brilliant. And it's, it's a nice story. And it's, and it's a great story for the, for the scouting team. Kieran Scott is head of recruitment. Mariella, um, who sort of at the time was doing all the data for us, she, she actually flagged him up um, to us. She, she was sort of quite relentless on it. So I think it's you know great sort of kudos for them. Um, and it, what it has done as well, it's built great confidence within the department, not so much for myself, because obviously I had that, but from above that, you know, because they're like, wow, these guys can pluck a guy from the Spanish division who's gone on and played however many games he's played last year for us in the championship winning team and playing the Premier League. And yeah, so it shows you, you know, that there is players out there. You've just got to, you've got to go and find them. And, and again, it comes back to, I touched on earlier about being brave, about being brave enough to sign them because Emmy, if you look at him, he's, five foot seven or whatever he's playing at the bottom of the Spanish secondly they actually got relegated his team that season you know it'd be easy to go come on he's, he's a little midget or whatever playing in the Spanish secondly what are you doing <laughs> that would be the easy thing to yeah. do um, but fair play the guys were brave and we did it and fair play then so obviously the head coach who when he came in he, he's developed and worked with him you know and, and he's developed a lot in the two years um, yeah, two, yeah two years yeah Stuart, how difficult is it to, you know, temper expectations? Because, 
you know, you've said on record before that you have to be brave because Norwich are a team that, no disrespect, are expected to finish probably 20th in the league because you've got the lowest wage bill in the Premier League. And you were like, you know, for every Buendia, you get a Patrick Roberts that it just doesn't work out. So how difficult is it to identify the right talent and what sort of data do you measure when you're buying a player? Yeah, it's really tough because, you know, let's be honest, we've all seen top players not work out at clubs where you think, oh, I spent 30 million and he's not turned out. And, and you know, I, remember, I always remember Juan Sebastian Veron signed for Man United and I loved him. And like, he didn't really do it there compared to what we know his level is. And it's like, you're looking at players like that and thinking, that just doesn't make any sense. And I think that that's where it is hard. It's certainly harder with the less resource you've got as well. So, you know, so like the pond that we're fishing in, um, you know, we haven't got the benefit of being able to spend 15, 20 million pounds on a player and and get that wrong. You know, we, we you know, we're, we're fishing in a different pond. So you do get ones often get more wrong than right. And I think, it, I think it's about understanding that. And I think it's with the, it comes back to education. It's about educating the, the board, the people around the club, the supporters even of, listen, you you're right for every Wendy or Pookie there is one which doesn't work out mm. but that's because we're signing players who are either completely young from markets that no one's ever heard of playing at a really low level potentially um, or there's something wrong with them maybe they've had injury histories etc etc you know we're not buying the finished product you know so um, you know we're here you know our job is we can't buy superstars but we can try and create them you know whether that's from our own academy or whether that's from scouting them so I think it's it's people understand that. And then in terms of the data, I think it's about understanding what type of player works for you. So if we know what our right back looks like, what certain things that he needs to hit from a performance point of view, again, you don't always get it right, but you know, we knew with Emmy, for example, he was creating X amount of chances in certain positions of the pitch where we like to play. And we were like, oh, if you transferred him playing the way we want to play, that works for us. Same with Pookie. You know, we, we were looking at the type of chances that Pookie was getting and thinking, we create a lot of them chances. So if he can make the similar type of runs here and we can continue creating them chances, the stats are telling us it's going to work in simple terms. Again, it doesn't always work like that, as, as we know, but it's about understanding exactly what you look for and then trying to marry up what someone's doing somewhere else and think it right. Yeah, he's doing it there. That's what we do. Now let's see if we can... Um, make it work in that states. Obviously, and then the higher level you get, it's tougher. You know, we're now trying to do a league with with players, um, which is obviously a lot tougher than in the championship. Sure, you touched on it um, there a little bit when you were talking about the the right back, and obviously you you uh, at Norwich have two of the best young fullbacks in in the league, um, of course, in in Max Aaron's and um, and Jamal Lewis. And we recently saw um, that, that, that rags-to-riches story, as, as, as Dej would like to say, of uh, Sam McCallum, who obviously went from non-league to Premier League in, in, a, in, in 18 months. Yeah. And what I want to ask is, because he's, he's, I think, 19 now, 19, yeah. Jamal Lewis, who is, I think, just a few years 21. older, he's about 20, 21. 21, yeah. right? 21, yeah. And so... Of course, that's a. I mean, it's a, it's a great sign and a great acquisition of a, of, of a, a top young player. But when you're making like that, do you do you ever consider and think about the fact that 
it could harm the development of one of those players in that their ages are so close to each other. So I use, by comparison, um, Leicester City as an example, right? Christian Fuchs is in the, in the latter stage of his career and you've got Ben Chilwell coming through. And so because of the fact that they're both at different ends of their career, it's, it's easier to manage. But if you've got um, a player like um, Sam McCallum and Jamal Lewis, who are so close in age and, and who are going to be competing for the position, does, it, does that become a difficult dynamic to manage then in terms of the development of both of those players? Yeah, good question. It does if you don't, if you don't really have a plan. So for us, in terms of Sam, do we think Sam's ready to play in the Premier League now? No, we don't, if, if we're honest. Um, you know, because his his rise has been, like you say, drastic. Um, but what he's done, he's had a great season now in League One. Unfortunately, it got curtailed for him. Great that he got promoted, but it would have been good for him to continue playing another 10 games or whatever. But either way, he's a season there playing good football. Now, it's what we do next with Sam is the key thing. Two things happen here. He comes here and genuinely competes for the shirt. And, and then it's best man wins. And then we have to sell... Jamal or whatever or it's actually mm, maybe that's not realistic right he needs to continue his journey elsewhere continuing to play and I think for us the reason we we um, we did the Sam one in particular was um, left backs are very hard to find homegrown left backs are even harder to find um, so there's like an opportunity in time there and we're also realistic that hopefully Jamal will be here for the rest of his career as you say he's performed very, very well in the Premier League so far. So, you know, we're also realistic that it might be difficult, the, you know, the, the better he keeps doing. And it's about having a plan that, okay, well, maybe we have the replacement ready. Um, hopefully we won't have to exercise that. But, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. But for sure, you know, the Fuchs and Chilwell one, that's, that's like the, if I'm honest, that's the per- perfect scenario. You know, we've probably got it now with uh, Puki and Adam Ida. So Adam Ida's a 19-year-old. Um, yeah, hat-trick against Preston, FA Cup. Yeah. Yep. And Puki use, you know, 30, 31 or whatever. And, um, you know, so it's a bit like that's that's a perfect one, but it sometimes doesn't work out. But I think the key is, to your point is, you've got to have a plan. What you can't do is we can't sign Sam. And then in one year time, he's not played any more football because he's been sub here or playing in the 23s because then he'll go backwards and then he won't be developed. So what we've got to do is make sure that whatever happens next season, he's either really genuinely competing here or he's continuing to play his his football and, and still in 12 months he'll only be 20 so he'll still be a, you know a really young player yeah I think that's the perfect segue into another young player um, Norwich you know this is a prodigious talent he scored six goals this season you know he's like the boy next door he's got that co- commercial appeal to him you know Todd Cantwell this is a man that's being linked with every man and his dog you know those top table clubs Liverpool Manchester United, Man City, you know, Newcastle have thrown their hat into the ring as well. How likely do you think it is that he will leave the club this summer? Because if rumours are to be believed, you know, it's sure enough a near thing that he's going to be leaving Norwich Football Club come the end of the season. Yeah, I think we have to be careful with rumours because I remember last summer, literally every day there was something on Max Aaron's that's not even an exaggeration. I think we can count it up at the end. There was something like two <laughs> links between Max Aaron's and we didn't get one bid. So um, I think we have to be really careful with the media. I think also we have to be careful of, or these players have to be careful and the, and the people around them of not not believing they should move too quickly. 
um, and not getting sort of not thinking they've outgrown somewhere too quickly. You know, I think if you look at I look at some players like Van Dijk, who's I'm sure we could probably agree is the best centre half in the world. Um, look at his journey though: Groningen, Holland, week Celtic every week getting some European exposure, Southampton, Liverpool. It's very, very hard for players to make that step at 2021 to be playing at these top, top level clubs. Absolutely not impossible, but extremely difficult. And if you don't time that right, if you don't, you know, I remember having a conversation with uh, Michael Emanalo, who's the technical director at Chelsea. And um, he spoke to me about, we were talking about Eden Hazard. And he says, what people forget is Eden Hazard won the League One, like France League One, player of the year four times in a row before we signed him. And he goes, I say to our players, no, that's when you're ready to play for Chelsea. And I look at our young players and go, you know what, you've had one season in the Premier League. That doesn't mean you're ready to play for Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, Man City, Liverpool, etc., etc. Um, and that's why I think we have to be really careful over hyping these young players too quickly. They've got to earn their right there that you know we're we're incredibly proud of how our young players have done um because they've served the club brilliantly and, and they're, they're fantastic ambassadors for the club and great people which is the most important thing but we have to remember that it's a long career and it's a long journey and to play it you know we've been fortunate this year you know we've played liverpool and man city and tottenham and all these and you look at the level of them players i remember um trent alexander when he played here you know you're looking at the level of him and you're like you know that that there's world class. That's world class right there in front of us, you know. And uh, he's performing at the highest level, isn't he, with international and whatever. And I think it's people understanding that that next step is very, very difficult. And you've got to be ready for that. You can't just assume that you're ready for it. You can't assume that you score goals in the Premier League. That means you can go and play and take Mo Salah's place because it's like, whoa, hang on a minute. We're talking about arguably the best player in Europe in the last two years here. We're not talking about taking. Uh, my place in the five-a-side team, you know. So I think it's, you know, we have to remember, we have to remember that. And it's about these young players producing performance consistently. You know, you, you've alluded to Ben Chilwell. We signed Ben at Huddersfield oh, yeah, when he was 18. Yeah. Come on, low for 12 games. You know, as an 18-year-old, and you know what a talent. But it's taken him. You know, he's probably up to about 100 games now, and he's probably just become an established. He's now getting talked about with maybe if Leicester don't get in the Champions League, he could go to that level. And that's someone who's playing for England's first choice left back. It's a long journey. And probably now, if he spoke to Ben, he'd probably go, yeah, I feel ready to be a Champions League player. Well, hopefully that's with Leicester. Um, not, oh yeah, I could have done it three years ago because I've played 20 games in the Premier League. I'm ready now. You know, I think you know, young players have to be really careful. They don't, you know, don't don't try and go too quick. All the people around them don't think that they can get there too quick. Cause yeah, yeah but happen. Stuart, um, Norwich... Uh... But in a precarious position, obviously you could go down. That's very viable, or you could stay up. Let's say if the worst was to happen, surely you can't blame Todd Cantwell, you know, for knocking on the door and saying, "You know what? I see myself as a bona fide Premier League player. I want to move." Um, no, I'd look at it slightly different because it's like a player who hasn't performed this year. You know, I don't drag him in the office and go, "Listen, you just need to leave because." you weren't good enough and we got relegated. I think, well, I got to remember, if we get relegated, all the players that we spoke about today have played their part in that. Mm. You know, it's not everyone else's fault. They've played a part in that. You know, if we get relegated, we haven't been good as a collective. Um, so, 
Do I believe they should have the ambition to want to continue playing? Absolutely. They should want to play in the Champions League. I want to work in the Champions League. Absolutely. Every single person I'm on our training ground now in this building should have that um, drive to want to work at the highest possible level. But you've also got to be respectful of that. And, and you've got to be respectful of what the club's done for you and the opportunity. And of course, we're all realistic. If the money and everything is right, of course. And the level of club is right, of course. Am I the guy who stops a player... Uh, going to play at a Champions League club. No, because I get it. And if a Champions League club wants you, they will pay whatever money we want. So Stuart, what's the valuation? What's the valuation for Todd? Because in January, he was linked with a lot of top clubs. So what kind of figure would you guys be looking at to, to even consider? I think it's hard to put a figure on it, but I think you only have to look at what certain players are being touted for. You know, I think... Um, I saw something in the, the media, BBC Gossip column, which I'm sure you will look at first thing in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first thing you do. You don't say hello to the wife, you go, I don't know. <laughs> um, is, that, is that right or what? <laughs> I look sometimes, I look sometimes. <laughs> Ruby, folding up the agents, you. But no, on that, um, Jack Greenish was linked to my life for £75 million. Pounds. Well, if that's a benchmark, what's Todd done different to Jack Greenish? So you think they're worth similar prices? So I'm not saying that. I'm not saying. He's worth I think that. Todd's probably worth 35, 40 million in this current market. Is that Who fair? Is? Todd Camwell. What do you think Grealish is worth? 50, 60? 60, 60 Why million. Is he worth more? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I think Grealish is much more seasoned at Premier League level. I think he's. He's only had this one season, same as Todd. Come on, he played about five games in the relegation one. Yeah, but I, I think, think that, when you look at he's closer to that England level. When you look at Grealish, you're talking Grealish, Madison, and I still think Todd Cantwell's, he's still young at this Premier League level, but I still think he can get to that level, but he's not there just yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the... So that's the price. Say that again. Say that again. Jack Reed is his agent on here, is it? I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, so Sue, um, moving on. Um, obviously, it came out in the last you know, round of testing that um, it was a Norwich um, City player that tested um, positive for COVID-19. Can you share some insight on that, please? Yeah, so I mean, you know, as, as you guys are well aware, each week we get tested twice, so the players and staff. Um, and yeah, we got tested on when was it? the Thursday, and then we get a result on the Friday night. Um, quite helpful that we'd already played a game and travelled to Tottenham, so it was a bit like, oh, cheers, good to know that after the event. But um, yeah, so I mean, we just got it. The, the player in question had no symptoms. Um, he played in the game. He wouldn't have, wouldn't have known anything was wrong, and then obviously it came through, so it was a real shock to him. Um, and to us, but also probably served as a good wake up of how dangerous this thing is that, you know, someone who genuinely did not feel any different to the day before suddenly gets tested positive for, for you know, let's be honest, a virus which can kill you. Um, unfortunately, it's been proven. So I think it was a wake up call of, okay, wow, we're all, you know, in danger here, you know, on something which, you know, we could get it at any point. But also, I think what it showed was that also, uh, you know, for our age, it's very hard that it's going to sort of hurt you in, in our health level. So I think, and hopefully, we're waiting for the next test results. 
if no one else has got uh, gets um, tested negative off the back of it, hopefully that also shows that our protocols are working well in terms of the social distancing and, and stuff like that. Because what the biggest disaster now is if suddenly when we had all the tests again today, when we get the results tomorrow night, if we suddenly got 10 people test uh, positive for it, then it's like, wow, we've, you know, our, our protocols are wrong. So in a strange way, it's good that we've had this test to sort of see how our protocols are working. Um, luckily the player in question is completely fine. He's, he's 100% nothing, you know, but nothing wrong with him. Um, he's actually done an independent test with our doctor, which has come back uh, negative. Wow, um, wow. Which is confusing. Um, so now he's got to have a third test to see yeah. if that comes back negative and to check if they've, excuse my term, I might get it wrong here, but to check if he's got antibodies or something, which could prove that, oh, you've had it in the past, but don't have it now or something like that. It, it's mm. all very scientific, isn't it? But the main thing is, is he's healthy. Um, and the rest of the group are healthy and, you know, but like I say, it's a good wake up call of how we've done all of these measures and one of us can still get it. That's quite scary, really. Wow. Mm. Do you know what, Stuart? I had a question I wanted to ask in terms of, you know, earlier you mentioned that you, um, you know, in, in, in the whole uh, Buendia deal, for example, you had a conversation with the finance director and, you know, you spoke about you know, everything and you were both very forthcoming in terms of your position on, 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 on the transfer. In terms of like working with the the finance director and, and, and other teams, um, generally speaking, are you almost assigned a budget relative to the objective of a club? So let's say, for example, at the start of a season, is it is it almost like right? In order for us to let's say stay in the Premier League, we need to spend roughly around about this much. If we have higher ambitions of, you know, pushing on for, a, let's say, and, and, and trying to, um, you know, go stake a claim for, for, for uh, one of the, uh, the, the European positions, we might need to spend a bit more. And, 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 and it, does it, does it, all like that in terms of the conversations that you have um, and, 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 and the budgets that you're allocated for player recruitment? Uh, no, yes and no. So yeah, in, in some clubs, yes, definitely. Um, our club not, so, our club's quite unique, really. That we're, oh, hang on a minute. Sorry, can you see me? We're uh, we're self-funded, um, so you know it's a big part of my job is to be across exactly where we are financially as a, as a club um, in every sort of scenario. So, right, we sell a player for this for ten million. We pay tax, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right, what can what can we go? Okay, that gives us six million left. Brilliant. Right, we can do. We want to do some work at the training ground, which is going to cost two million. Right, we'll sign that off. We want to spend a million on the academy. So I'm really fortunate that I'm, you know, part of a, a three-person exec committee here who, who has say on all of them sort of key key decisions. But um, basically how we do it, we, we, we always work three years ahead. And so when we got promoted, we, we managed to clear a load of debt, pay off the training ground, et cetera, et cetera, that we've redone. And um, we made a conscious decision, rightly or wrongly, to go, right, what we're going to do here is we're not going to really invest in the team. We're going to invest in our assets, so give new contracts to all of our players, um, especially the young ones, and, and tie them down for a long time and back them and give them that opportunity to play in the Premier League. Um, and then, uh, but with that, we run the risk of potentially not having a squad strong enough to stay up in the Premier League. But if that doesn't happen, we've safeguarded the club for the next few years. 
rather than we were never going to be able to do a Villa or a Fulham and go and spend hundred million for that money. Um, but what we didn't want to do is get stuck in no man's land of maybe spending forty million and still getting relegated because it's like, yeah, but that forty million isn't enough to guarantee that we're going to stay up. And what we don't have, we don't have an owner um, who writes a cheque. So if we get it wrong, we've got to repair it in-house. Mm. And that's what the club have done previously in, in the Premier League when they signed Naismith and Closer and all these guys for a lot of money. And Wolfswinkel as well. And Wolfswinkel, all these sort of ones. And I was like, I sat there and we made this decision, like I say, rightly or wrongly, if we get relegated, people say it was wrong. Uh, and I, and I live, I live, will live for that. But it was like, no, we can't put that club... We don't believe we can put the club in that situation again. So that if we do go down, we're in a real strong position to come back up because we don't need to sell players. If we do sell a player, we can reinvest that money back in the squad, etc., um, etc. Et and we can have a go at making sure next time we get back to the Premier League, if we got down, or if we got relegated, that you know we could be stronger that time. You know, and it's about building it over a period of time. Um, similar to like what Burnley have done. We, we you know, we obviously we play. For Football did, but you know, I have huge respect for what Sean Dyson and the guys have done there in terms of they went up, they didn't spend a lot of money, they came down, they went up, they stayed up, and each time they've just grown the club and they slowly but surely an amazing training ground. They've done an incredible job there, um, you know, and, and they have to, you know, act as an inspiration for a club like us or Mainz did it in Germany, for example. So the Premier League returns in the next few days, and obviously, there was a lot of rumors emanating that the clubs down the bottom you know, thought there should be no relegation this season. What's the feeling within the Norwich camp? Are you guys happy to, you know, uh, if you guys possibly go down, would you guys accept relegation? Yeah, of course, yeah. If it's played out on the pitch, yeah. I think um, our biggest gripe was the thought of our season continuing at all costs, just because, you know, for financial reasons, but then maybe the championship being curtailed and clubs being promoted, it'd be a bit like, well, getting out of the championship is a 46-game slog of 49 if you're in the playoffs. We didn't deem it was right that we could play, get relegated, but clubs get promoted. But also, the, the real key point that people missed is, is we could be relegating into a league which wouldn't be starting, potentially. Well, why would we vote for that? And also, we could be relegated into a league where teams have all had six months off. So we, we, we're slogging out a Premier League season, nine games in whatever, four weeks, and then, oh, relegated, bang, two weeks, you're going to start a new season. Oh, they've all had a six-month break. Oh, cheers for that. You know, it's, so, so that was our, um, our biggest issue. But at no point have we wanted to curtail the season. We wanted to play because, you know, we've got a league. We want, to, we want to have the chance to play together. And we're a football club. We're foot, and football fans, it's like we're, we're here to entertain. Fundamentally, that's what football is. It's an entertainment industry. And, you know, we pay pay people a lot of money to entertain so it's like we want that you know footballers want to play football um, so we've wanted to get back and, and as quickly as possible um, because that's well yeah that's what's, what's the point of the world about football um, there is you know, well, we wouldn't be talking about this would we what would we be talking about tonight you know TikTok yeah. or something you know it's like you know, that's <laughs> <what's> <laughs> so um, let's be only football back and you know we were we were always desperate for that yeah, so, you know, 10 games left of the season. The season resumes on Wednesday. So what's the inside feeling on the camp? Because from the outside looking in, a lot of people have said, oh, Norwich just sort of waved the white flag. They haven't spent money this season. Sort of, they're going down. Then it's sort of like, who's the other two teams that's going to go down with them? So if you could just give us an insight into the mood 
Like, how are Daniel and the rest of the lads feeling ahead of the resumption of the Premier League? Yeah, um, you know, we've got nothing to lose because, like, quite rightly say, everyone's already relegated us. It's, it's the conversation is who's going down with Norwich, not who are going down. Um, and I think that's great for us because, you know, we, we can't actually lose here because if we get relegated, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we knew, we knew that was happening. Um, so we can go play without any pressure, um, embrace it. If it, you know, if, if our Premier League season is going to be the last nine games and we've got the FA Cup as well, then we may as well go and enjoy it and embrace it and try and win every single game and, and you know, enjoy it. As opposed to the pressure that some clubs will be under of, oh, if we get beat on Saturday, what does that mean? And I think that's it. And, and hopefully for us, you know, we've got a, young, a lot of young players that we've spoken about. We've got players who, this could be the last chance they'll ever have to play in the Premier League, you know. So, don't have any regrets. Go and go and have a good go at it. And like you say, we've got nothing to lose. It's, it's the best best league in the world. It's the best jobs in the world. So, you know, let's have a good go. And I think that's very much the sort of um, the spirit, really. And we can take it game by game, the old cliches and stuff like that. But we have genuinely got nothing to lose. Clubs above us who've got everything to lose. Um, and that's a different pressure. You know, if you're sat there now going, looking at your fixtures, a little bit scared, a little bit, oh, if we, if we don't win that one, what will that mean? You know, luckily we don't have that. Luckily we can sit here and go, everyone's written us off. So, you know, the problem if we get relegated, we plan for relegation. So it's it's not going to change the club. We don't want it to happen. It'll be upsetting and it'll be annoying and, and be horrible and whatever. But it's not like it cripples the club, you know. And I think um, so that hopefully eases a bit of pressure off the boys. Um, and, they, and I just want them to go and embrace it and enjoy themselves regrets. Whatever happens in the next six weeks with the league and the FA Cup, don't be sad in the summer going, oh, I could have done more or I could have done this, I could have done that. Because, you know, we all know, and I think hopefully this period in time with COVID has proven that, you know, life can be too short, right, for any of us. Mm. And it's like, it's too short to have any regrets or I wish I'd done that or whatever. So hopefully they'll embrace it and, um, you know, whatever it is, we'll be proud of them because, you know, they've done brilliant for this club, every single one of them. So uh, hopefully they can finish this season off in style and, you know, and Dan talks about the greater create a little miracle and, and why not? That's why we all watch the game, right? To see yep, amazing things happen, whether that's Leicester winning. You saw league. it against Man City earlier on when you had like 10, 11 injuries. And... Exactly, you know, Tottenham way in the FA Cup. You know, Even the can... win against Leicester just before the, the break. Yeah, that like Jamal Lewis. And yeah. Yeah. So, Stuart, last question from me. Um, I know a few Norwich fans and, you know, the one thing they tell me that this is a community club. This club is for the community. Obviously, they're not going to be able to watch their team at Carroll Road for a long time. So what is your message to the, to the Norwich faithful? I think we just need them to, to give positive energy to us. You know, We need them to, to invest in this, watching their games at home as they would watching it in the stadium. You know, we need them, you know, people, we need that feeling around the city when people are walking around, of, you know, the they still believe in what we're trying to do and what the team's trying to do because we need that. And then, and we need them to stop off social media and don't criticise people or whatever, you know, just sort of, come on, let's have five weeks of sticking together and, and trying to create a little miracle. And then we can dissect it after the event. That's, that's yeah. the time to dissect it. But yeah, we need, we need to be behind them. But it's got into, be honest, that we're playing football without the fans because yeah, almost what is the point? Yeah, it makes me weep internally. Honestly, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, so so Stuart, we want to, you know, round off this interview talking about you. Your last recent jobs, you've had two to three years. 
you've been at Norwich for around two to three years. Three years, no, yeah. yeah, three years. So, you know, a lot of big clubs, if rumours are to be believed, they've been knocking on the door. I've seen you've been linked to that role at Manchester United. You've also famously said you want to work abroad. So in the next 12 to 18 months, where do you see your future? Is it still at Norwich? Have you got a job to complete? Or do you think, you know what, I've done my job. I've reshaped, you know, the ph- philosophy of this team. And now it's time for me to move on, on to Pan. No, I mean, listen, for sure I'll be here for the next two years because that's the length of my contract, unless I get sacked. But that's, that's the length of my contract. Um, and I've committed to that, to the, to the owners and, and the board, and, and I'm a man, my word. So I'll, I'll do that. And then, yeah, I've said it countless times on record. I, I want to work abroad. You know, I want to go and... It comes back to that diversity piece we, we touched on earlier. You know, I, I, want to, I need to go and experience different cultures. I need to go and see how different cultures think about the game. And, and Is that Spain, Italy, or any countries? Um, Spain and Italy would be, would be my two yeah. choices. Spain would be my first choice for, for sure. And I'm learning the language at the minute, uh, working hard on that because, you know, I want to, if I do get the opportunity, if I'm fortunate enough to get the opportunity, I want to like not have any regrets. I want to embrace it and, and be the best I can be at it. But um, yeah, I've still got, you know, I'm only 36. So I've got so much I need to learn. Um and that's why I want to do that. You know, it's not going to Spain with any level of arrogance of expecting a big job because I don't. It's it's going out there to become a better, better at what I do. And, and, and you know, one day maybe if I'm fortunate to come back to this country and get a different job, you know, I've got some more more skills in my in my toolkit for for one of a better phrase. Because um, yeah, I need that. You know, I'm young and, and I've got a lot to learn and I've got a lot of developing to do. But you know, I really want to go and try and do that in a different culture and a different. You know, a different world, really. Oh, <laughs> this has been brilliant. Sure. This has been a clinic of yeah. insight into your role. And again, as a podcast, this is what we want to do. We want to provide different insights. We've had managers, ex-players, legends. And I think it's important for our platform to have people like you to come and give us your insight into, mm. you know, your role, which, which is what you've done perfectly today. Honestly. So we can only thank you for that. Thank Pleasure. you, Stuart. Really appreciate it, Stuart, and really just appreciate how open and honest you've been um, in the time that we've, we've been speaking. Um, it's just been great to, to hear you speak about your experiences at, at various different clubs and, and, of course, what your ambitions are for, for the future. Um, we actually planned for 45 minutes, um, yeah, but when we're all <laughs> yeah. talking about football, that's how quick time yeah. goes. Thank yeah. you, Stuart. Sure. This is it. <laughs> And um and and of course, once the Premier League resumes, we'll uh, we'll all be sort of uh, waited in 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 bated breath for the, end of the season in in hopes for a miracle. Um, but for, for Norwich, so um you know, wishing wishing you all the best for for the rest of the season. Um and and, and of course, we're gonna we're gonna end it there. So just uh, want to say a, a thank you to uh, all of you listeners and and viewers uh, for tuning in up until this point. Um, a quick reminder before we sign off, if you're not yet following us on this at podcast underscore TVG, on Instagram at pod underscore TVG, um, you can subscribe to YouTube to watch our content. It's the Beautiful Game podcast um, and listen to our content on Spotify, but also on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts as well. And if you're listening in on Apple Podcasts, please make sure you leave a five star review. Until the next episode, over and out. Oh, 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 
mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash internet for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.